Hi, I'm Brad. And I'm Alyssa. And welcome to Strange History, the podcast where we talk about, you guessed it, Strange History. On today's episode, we'll cover a series of events that take place during a time that historians refer to as the Scramble for Africa. In this discussion, you'll hear about a famous doctor, a future politician, some cool battles, and hear us horribly mispronounce African city and state names. For the event of the day, Alyssa will be covering some topics that got her so excited, I actually saw her smile for once. That's... I, I should have approved this. Episode 20. Dr. Livingstone, I presume? Now, the Scramble for Africa is a campaign done by basically the entire world in hopes of carving out chunks and sections of the African continent for use by Europeans and eventually Americans as well. Pretty much everyone had a stake in the game early on, but the most prominent of those would be the Cape Cod. Established by British forces, the Cape Colony sat on, as its name suggests, the Cape of Good Hope, Southern Africa. The Cape Colony was one of the last stops for the East India Company before crossing into the waters around Southern Europe and Asia, and as a result of its placement, the city completely flourished under just trade. Fresh meat, clean water, fruits, veggies were all traded from the port town, and its location meant that it could be a jumping off point for expeditions and travels around the world. This is where exploration comes into play, and is the true beginning of what we call the Scramble for Africa. Untamed by modern standards and full of things that nobody really knew about, the interior of Africa was a complete mystery. Of course, it would hold gold and precious metals, exotic animals, and lost civilizations. But getting to the interior was the hard part. But what's hard about taking a walk north, east, south, or west? Well, in Africa, it's literally fucking everything. First off, the animals. Lions, crocodile, water, buffalo, mosquitoes! <laughs> now, when I say these things are big, guys, I mean African mosquitoes are huge. The mosquitoes that we have here where we live are pretty small. I'm sure Alyssa's seen a mosquito at one point in time in her life. They're tiny. They're itty bitty little things. But, oh my god. African mosquitoes, big. Literally the size of a man's hand. And of course, they're known for, uh, you know, carrying diseases. West Nile virus, Zika, malaria. Let's focus on the last one though. Malaria is very dangerous. It still to this day claims 400,000 lives a year throughout the entire world. And that's with medication and cures. Originally, it was just a death sentence. If you got it, you die. Chills, fever, literal parasites growing in your blood, organ failure, anemia, all kinds of stuff. The list just goes on and on and on. It took a very brave person to explore the African interior. But Dr. David Livingstone was our man. And he was not nearly as afraid as other people were. Dr. David Livingstone was born on March 19th in 1813 in Blantyre, Lancashire, Scotland. He was one of seven children, and he grew up in a very hardworking, uh, very impoverished family. His mother was a descendant of the Covenators, which was just Scottish Presbyterians. They lived in a single-room home in a building that was for cotton factory workers, because that's where his dad works. 
At the age of 10, he was then put to work in that cotton factory with his family. He worked mornings and then at night he would attend the mill school from 8 to 10 p.m. He used his very first week's pay to purchase a Latin grammar book. Interesting. Very cute. Sorry, boy, they speak Latin. <laughs> he then joined an independent Christian congregation with his father, of a little bit more stricter discipline than the Calvinist faith that they were originally raised in. In 1834, there was an appeal by British and American churches uh, for qualified medical missionaries um, to go to China and help out. And that's what Livingstone really wanted to do. That was the profession that he wanted to pursue. So at this teeny tiny little mill school, he achieved university qualifications, which is pretty incredible. He went to the Andersonian Medical School in Glasgow um, while he was still working at the mill. He was then accepted for service by the London Missionary Society and in 1838, he went to London for a theological training while still continuing medical school. He only went back to Glasgow to take his finals. So once he was done with school, he wanted to fulfill his dream of going to China. But at the time, we had the Opium Wars, which mm -hmm. we won't get into today, but yeah. Um, so that sort of crushed his dreams a little bit. He ended up meeting a man named Robert Moffat, who was a Scottish missionary who spent most of his time in Southern Africa. And ironically, this man would be his future father-in-law. And he convinced him, he convinced Livingstone that Africa was where he should go. That was where the world needed his medical um, and religious services. He was ordained on November 20th in 1840, which is my mom's birthday, not the 1840 part, but <laughs> November 20th. <laughs> and then by the end of that year, he set sail for South Africa and he arrived in Cape Town on March 14th, 1841. He sort of stayed with Moffat, serving under him um, to help the Tatswana people, and he soon became very fluent in their language as well. So he started with Latin, and really as we go through his life, he's picked up I would say tens of languages, just based on everywhere that he went. Um, he started moving north, and he actually went farther north than any other European into Kalahari country. And uh, Livingstone familiarized himself with all the local cultures uh, and the languages, like I said. In 1844, during a journey to Mombasa, he was mauled by a lion. Like Brad mentioned, all the animals in Africa, it injured his left arm to the point where he had to learn to shoot and aim left-handed. Is that right? Yeah. He had to support the gun with his left shoulder and his right hand instead of the other way around. It's it's so awkward. <laughs> I've tried. It's the most awkward thing. And that's saying a lot because I'm a very awkward man. In... 1845, so the year after he was mauled by a lion, he ended up marrying Mary Moffat, Robert's daughter. She followed him on many expeditions, and while they were in Africa, they had four kids and eventually had six kids while traveling around Africa. Um, though in 1852, she took the four kids at the time back to Scotland um, just for health and safety reasons, and she wanted them to get like a like an actual in-school education. Um, that was something they agreed on. So he stayed in Africa, and she went back to Scotland. Now, in 1849, Livingstone and another British explorer named William Cotton Oswell teamed up and actually crossed the Kalahari Desert. 
That's an area that spans 350,000 square miles. Or if you're not using miles, it's 900,000 square kilometers. And there they found an area called Lake Nagimi. Nagimi was quoted by Livingstone as being, quote, a shimmering lake some 80 miles or 130 kilometers long and 20 or 30 kilometers wide, unquote. Livingston also added into his notes some interesting stories about local cultures, with one that really stood out to the explorer. Apparently, locals around this area had their own version of the story of the Tower of Babel. Today, the lake hardly exists. It's been reported as continually shrinking since 1890, but it does flood over every few years. Here, Livingstone heard of a highway to the coast and set out up yet again. Do you know that in because he discovered Lake Nagimi, he got a gold medal and a monetary prize from the British Royal Geographical Society? I did not. Yeah, they just they gave out a lot of medals. Did you know the uh West Virginia Department of Natural Resources today gives you a $500 stipend if you find and identify an uncatalogued cave in the state. So what I'm hearing is we need to go cave hunting. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, $500? And the, the stipulations around it are so simple. You have to be able to get into it, and it has to be able to go back at least 30 feet, and that is what they consider a cave. So in other words, we are going cave hunting after this. We're going this. cave hunting. Cool. Maybe not today. It's kind of cold. I don't want to go tracing around in the woods. It's cold. I'd do it. <laughs> Livingstone eventually set out yet again and found what he would call the key to the interior. While what he found is not a real key, nor is it a highway, it was in fact the Zimbizi River. Nearly 1,600 miles long, yet only the fourth largest on the continent. Before venturing further, Livingstone would send his family home and continue exploring later in 1852. Did I mess up? No, it's just that's just what I said. That's oh, fine. Okay. Um, traveling north along the river, he would eventually find a small village called Vinyadi, a town populated by a native African group called the Kulolo. No, it's the uh, Makololo. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Because okay. I mention them a lot. Okay. Well, I'm going to let you take it from here then. So what's your <laughs> name? So they, um, from there, it was November 11th, which is my birthday, 1853, um, he took some of those Makololo people with them because they were trying to get from basically like Central Africa to the Atlantic Ocean. But they were trying to very specifically avoid the Boer people, Boer, Boer, Boer people, because um, they had attacked his friends and destroyed his home uh, the year before. So they made it to Luana on the west coast on May 31st, 1854, so about six months. It's a small hike, isn't it? Oh, it's a small hike. Do you, the distance was around 1,200 miles, which today... Is a 24-hour flight and a 30-hour drive, 412-hour walk. And that's without avoiding territories. And without stopping. Yeah. Another point of him doing this whole trek from 
um, Lignanti to the Atlantic Ocean, I guess. At least this was his intention. I'm not sure if it worked. Well, I don't think it did. He wanted to very much undercut the slave trade. Yeah. He was very much anti-slavery. Uh, he was also supposed to be looking for a way to establish trade routes yes. between the east and western coasts. When Livingston and his group did arrive in, where was it? Where they ended up? Luanda. Luana. Luana. Um, it's honestly a miracle that they even made it. Livingstone was so sick that he would have died from fever within just a few days if they wouldn't have found town. The trade route would work, but Livingstone actually decided it was too dangerous to use at present time. The group rested for a while and then set back off again, going down the exact same path to the town that they actually started at. From there, they picked up a new group of extra men and began venturing again once they prepared themselves, this time going east. Do you have anything about the east? Um, he discovered Victoria Falls. He did dis discover Victoria Falls. After only 50 hours of walking, or 154 miles, they found one of the largest waterfalls in the entire world. He described it as thundering and smoke-like. And if you're curious, the original name of Victoria Falls is Masi Uatunya. And his description of thundering water was actually based on something that one of the guides told him. Because the name, Mosai Awatua, is a translation of the phrase, the smoke that thunders. Mm, okay. But that's really hard to say. <laughs> so from now on, we're just going to refer to that as Victoria Falls. And of course, if you're wondering, it was named after Queen Victoria. She's going to come up again, don't you worry. Setting out once again, the group eventually found their way to a city on the so other side of the continent, the Indian Ocean. Can you say that? Quillamane? Quillamane. In Mozambique. And Alyssa's going to tell you guys a little bit more about Livingstone and some of the cool stuff that he's done. <laughs> so after um, they, they reached Quillamane in Mozambique, um, that was May 20th, 1856, he returned to England on December 6th of that same year, and he was declared pretty much a national hero, um, almost worldwide. Anyone in the English-speaking world at this point knew who David Livingstone was and all the missions that he had gone on in Africa and all these things that he had done. Um, he had written and published a book, Missionary Travels and Researches in South Africa, in 1857, and it did so well at the time, it sold 70,000 copies. Wow. And his family's financial security was pretty much secure, which was great because at the time, um, you know, despite all these things that he was doing, his family was still very much impoverished. So his, his wife and kids actually had money to live on while he was still exploring because he wrote that book and sold it so well. For the next six months, he traveled around the British Isles. He gave speeches at colleges and um, I think to Parliament as well. He spoke at Cambridge and that's where he expressed that uh, he knew that he wasn't going to be able to finish all the work that he wanted to do in Africa. So he kind of called on, called out, however you want to phrase it, the university men to continue his work. He was sort of giving them this responsibility in his speech. And so that's when the university's mission to Central Africa was made, and they actually went in 1860. 
in uh, March of 1858, so a year later, he went on a government-backed expedition to introduce commerce, civilization, and Christianity to the lands of the Zambezi River and Lake Malawi. It was a complete disaster. <laughs> it did help increase our geographical knowledge of that part of Africa. However, his wife had accompanied him on this trip, and in 1862, she died while they were on Zambezi. She had malaria, because of course, and she was actually in his arms when she passed. In his grief, he confided in a friend, and this is a direct quote. He said, I loved her when I married her, and the longer I lived with her, the more I loved her. That's so sweet. <laughs> so they were very much in love. They had six kids back in uh, Scotland. Uh, around this time as well, that's like I mentioned, the university's mission was there, but they actually withdrew two years after that they were there. And this sort of created bad relations with Livingstone and some of his other white colleagues. It ruined his reputation in Britain when he returned uh, in 1864, just because not everyone agreed with what he was doing, because like I said, he wanted to undercut the slave trade. He was trying to at least in his mind, I know everyone feels differently about African colonization, but he was trying to help these people that he thought needed help when, like, you know, the countries that he was doing this for and all these people that were being sent from other countries just wanted to colonize it and make it a territory and make money. And that's not what he wanted to do. Right. So sort of, I don't know, burning some bridges with his radical views in the 1800s. Oh, for sure. the Foreign Office had proposed to Livingstone the idea of a massive expedition to explore the Nile River, with the goal of finding the source of the Nile as the end game of this massive project. Livingstone would return to Zanzibar with the idea that the source would be one of two places definitively, Lake Victoria, also named after Queen Vicky, or Lake Albert. He was wrong either way. The source of the Nile is actually in the mountains, and nowhere near where he was searching. As Livingstone and his crew began to set out, a series of incredibly unfortunate events began to occur. His assistants just started to simply abandon him. In fact, two had returned to Zanzibar just days later and informed authorities that Livingstone was dead. In early August, the expedition would reach an area called Lake Tangiyaka, but things were worsening from there. Stolen supplies, no medicine, and sickness had attacked the group, and Livingstone was sick yet again. He had fallen in with slave traders and Arab merchants in an attempt to just keep moving. The wet season sat in, and so did pneumonia, cholera, and starvation. At one point in time, the only way Livingstone could even get a hot meal was in exchange for live entertainment. Basically, he would let these local tribes lock him in a cage while he ate his food. And they would just gather around and watch. I mean... And gawk at this strange man. I mean, most of them had probably at that point never seen a white man exactly. before. That would be weird to me too. Livingstone would eventually witness a slaughter of natives at the hand of Arab slavers. And this completely broke him. 
mentally and emotionally to the point of where he refused to carry on the expedition. And it was then that Livingstone simply vanished. He actually disappeared from European view uh, quite often. There's just <laughs> what he liked to do. Same. Well, I don't know if he did it intentionally or not, but he did disappear from their view for months at a time. On no, In November of 1871, he was, quote-unquote, found and greeted by Henry M. Stanley from the New York Herald. And the first thing he said when he saw Dr. Livingstone was, Dr. Livingstone, I presume? It's the only thing that he could think of to say. And I'll talk a little bit more about Henry Stanley um, here in a second. Dr. Livingstone died on May 1st in 1873 in Zambia. Some of his African friends actually buried his heart at Chitambo's village and then carried his mummified body to Dar es Salaam. And then it was later brought back to Britain for a hero's, hero's funeral in Westminster Abbey. Um, Henry Stanley was actually a pallbearer at his funeral. They, I'm just, they mummified him? Yeah. They did. How cool is that? <laughs> so so he, was, he was mummified, and his heart was buried in Africa. Which, prob- yeah, which probably was really sweet to him. Um, I, he spent 30 years traveling and doing Christian missionary work across southern, eastern, and western Africa. He went to places that no other Europeans had before him, um, he went to so many places that other people were scared to go to. He didn't have that fear in him. He believed what he was doing was great. He helped influence Western attitudes toward Africa. Um, not always in a good way. And then with his discoveries, we got a little bit more of a complex view of Africa. We got to see um, geological advances, learning what's what. You know, the Nile River, all these lakes, Victoria Falls, stuff like that. He learned new cultures and languages. He got to see civilizations that have their own technology, their own social classes, their own medical knowledge, while also providing, you know, some of what he could bring from the Western world, sort of intermingling with all these people. So now we'll get into who Henry Stanley was. And this man is so (laughs) interesting. So he was born January 28th in 1841 in Denby, Denbyshire, Wales, because they African countries, but God forbid you give me a word <laughs> in Wales. So his parents had him out of wedlock at the time, and his mother was actually still a teenager. Um, his dad was old as hell. He was like in his 70s. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, he was originally named John Rollins, and um, his mom had registered his name at the local church that I guess you did back in the day. And his actual registered birth name was John Rollins, comma, bastard. Because he was out of wedlock. She then abandoned him, um, leaving him in the care of his grandfather, who died actually just a few years later. So at six years old, he was sent to a workhouse in St. Aspa. St. Aspa? Cool. And his dad, 75 died at the time working while in the field. So his mom was a teenager. His dad was like 69. He received uh, actually a pretty decent education at the workhouse. Um, and he used to lie about things as like a kid and a teenager, like things that would happen around him. When he grew up and would talk about his past, he would just like make things up to make his life a little bit more exciting. 
I couldn't really find any specific examples other than like he would say that the boys at this workhouse and at this school were like doing crazy things. Um, but no one really believed him and it really wasn't, none of that actually happened, whatever he would make up. At 17 years old, John was a cabin boy on an American freighter and he jumped ship shortly afterwards uh, after it docked in New Orleans. Good place. And he decided to change his identity. He named himself after Henry Stanley, who was a local wealthy cotton merchant, claiming to be his adopted son. So now his name was Henry Morton Stanley. The interesting thing about that is one source said they never met at all. And another one says that they did meet and they were actually friends, but no one knows which is true. So either they were friends and they met or they didn't. From there, he used his brand new name to join the Confederate Army. Of course he did. Yep, in 1861. He actually fought at the Battle of Shiloh, and then he was captured by the Union Army. So he decided to switch sides and enlist in the Union because he was captured. <laughs> um, and then he deserted them and joined the Federal Navy. He was serving as a clerk on the Minnesota before he eventually jumped ship again. He's a real reliable dude, that one. Her common theme of his life is just being like, mm, peace out. From here, he traveled across America. Uh, he covered a lot of battles that were going on at the time as a freelance journalist. He also went to Turkey and wrote a book about it called My Early Travels and Adventures in America and Asia that was published in 1895. If Stanley was doing anything, he was going to write a book about it. That was his whole, a book, an article, something. He was going to write about it and let people know what he was doing. Two years later, he reached out to James Gordon Bennett, who was the editor of the New York Herald at the time, and offered his services. And he actually became a special correspondent with the uh, British Expeditionary... Expedent... Oh my gosh. That word. Expeditionary. Thank you. Force um, that had been sent against Tewardros II of Ethiopia. Stanley was actually the first to report uh, on the fall of Magdala in 1868. He also did a report on the Spanish Revolution that was happening at the time. Um, and then in October 1869, Bennett um, sent Stanley to find Livingstone, which we mentioned, um, and he found him. On that journey, he went a really weird way. So he went to Egypt first to talk about what was going on with the Suez Canal because it was opening at the time. And then he went to Palestine, Turkey, and then India, and then finally back to Africa. <laughs> Um, he was on the East Coast near Zanzibar uh, by 1871. And so from there, he went on his 700-mile quest, if you want to call it that, wearing all white and riding a thoroughbred stallion. Dude wanted people to look at him. He, he wanted to be the center of attention. He was accompanied by a small army of guards and bearers. Days into his travel, his stallion died. It was bitten by a... <laughs> uh, um, was it Setsi fly? And so it died. They lost supplies because um, some of the natives he had with him just started deserting him. They would just take the shit and go. And those who stayed with him uh, were overcome by many diseases. They encountered tons of tribes who chased them away with spears and poison arrow, arrows. And one tribe chased them while yelling meat, meat in their native language. Cute. <laughs> he was going through it. Um, after 236 days and 700 miles, 
Uh, he finally reached the island of Ujiji near Lake. Oh my gosh. Tanganyika? Sure. On November 10, 1861, which is when, like I said, he found Livingstone. But when Livingstone wrote in his journal, he actually said that Stanley, Stanley was there between um, October 24th and 28th. So sometime in the fall, we just don't know when. And like I said, he said, Dr. Livingstone, I presume. Um, he was very clearly ill and his supplies were lacking. This is sort of when they started their friendship and they actually explored uh, the northern end of that lake. And um, they, he could see that Livingstone was very unwell. When he left and went back to the coast, he actually made sure that supplies were sent to Livingstone that he could, so that he could carry on. Um, but obviously he died uh, two years later in 1873. Stanley came back to England in 1872, and he published a book, of course he did, called How I Found Livingstone. Um, it actually made the Royal Geographical Society really upset because they had spent so much time and resources trying to find Livingstone, but no one could do it. And this American journalist just pops up and does it, no problem. They still gave him a gold medal, though. He does medals, gold medals. Yeah, he gave them, they gave them the, uh, the patron's gold medal. Even though they were like, damn you. Here's a medal, thanks. Um, after Livingstone died, uh, Stanley was very much inspired by what he had done. So he wanted to continue that work um, with what Brad mentioned of finding the source of the Nile River. He still hadn't found it at this point. Um, he got financial support from the New York Herald and the Daily Telegraph. And their caravan left Zanzibar on November 12th, Brad's birthday, 1874. They headed to Lake Victoria to confirm what John H. Speaks, um, who was another explorer, what his estimates had been um, about the lake and everything that was around it, that it was the second largest freshwater lake in the world. Um, they also discovered the Shineo River. There's a lot of criticism coming from England at the time because there was a lot of sort of fights and skirmishes between Stanley and all the native people that they came into contact with. Um, Livingstone was very much chill. I guess it's the best way I can phrase it. He wasn't approaching these villages or native people in like a hostile way, but Stanley was. Um, he was very forceful in his methods, they said. Uh, he caused a lot of casualties, both on his end and um, for the natives. So he really wasn't continuing Livingstone's work in the way that Livingstone would have wanted. Uh, they continue on. They eventually sailed down the Livingstone River, which is now the Congo River. They reached the Atlantic Ocean on August 12th in 1877. Uh, three of the white men he had with him, uh, Frederick Barker and then Francis and Edward Pocock, as well as some of the dogs that came with them, actually died during this 7,000-mile-long trek. And he wrote a book about it. Through the Dark Continent, that's what he called it. Afterwards, he was sent on another expedition for King Leopold II of Belgium, who wanted to prove that the Congo Basin was rich enough to repay exploitation. So, in other words, can we use this and exploit the ever-living fuck out of it and it still be okay for Africa, even though I'm sure he didn't care? Um, so he went back to the Congo. Um, he actually set up some trade stations that uh, helped lead to the founding of the Congo Free State in 1885, um, if you can call it that, because it was under Belgium. It wasn't like they were their own free, whatever, Belgium had control of them. From 
um, in August to June of 1884. Stanley was in the Congo Basin. He built a road from the lower Congo up to the Stanley Pool, which is now the Malabo Pool, uh, launched steamers on the upper river. And this is where he earned his nickname, Bula Matari, which means breaker of rocks. Because he was like actually putting in hard physical labor to build this road. So he was actually like being the state road. Yes, he was, yeah. He was <laughs> the state road. Yes. Um, so after those three years, he of course wrote a book about it, published in 1885, called The Congo and the Founding of its Free State. In January of 1887, he was sent on his final expedition to Africa. And he had a goal, which was to relieve uh, Mehmed Imen Pasa, who was the governor of the equatorial province of Egypt, um, who had been cut off by the Madidist revolt in 1882 near Lake Howard. Um, so he went to go find this man and his people. He um, decided to use the Congo River, and he asked for some help um, from an old friend named uh, Thibaut Tib, who had helped him um, prior when he started doing the Let Me Finish Livingstone's work before. Um, so Thibaut Tib was there to like help him, but he kind of didn't. <laughs> which I'll get to, but for a side note, and I want you guys to know that I wrote this half in all caps, and I texted Brad about it, and he was like, oh, I knew this, so this is for the other people who didn't know this. One of the people on this expedition was James Jameson, who was the heir of Jameson Whiskey. He bought an 11-year-old girl for the price of a few handkerchiefs and then he gifted this child to a known cannibal tribe so that he could watch her be dismembered, cooked, and eaten. And then he recorded the events in his sketchbook. And no one had any idea until after he died. He died of a fever. Thank God. And when Stanley found out, he was actually really upset. And he claimed that Jameson wasn't always this horrible person, but that Africa made him this way. Um, I don't think so. I think he was always fucked up. You're gonna buy an 11 year old and gift her to cannibals. Anyway, Stanley's expedition reached the head of the river in June. Um, he had actually left a rear column with orders um, to await Tipu Tibbs porters, which never came. So like I said, he asked for help. Uh, didn't really get it. Finally, the whole expedition came together on Lake Albert. Um, they found Emen and 1,500 people, and they set towards the East Coast on April 10th, 1889, uh, and they arrived at Bagamoyo on December 4th. This actually helped us uh, clear up a lot of geographic discrepancies, um, like the Semliki River linked uh, Lakes Edward and Albert, and explorers got to see uh, Ruwenzori Range, or um, what's that? Ptolemy's Mountains of the Moon. Ptolemy's Mountains of the Moon for the first time. He wrote a book about it in 1890 uh, in Darkest Africa, and he received another medal from the Royal Geographical Society. On July 12, 1890, he married Dorothy Tennant. They adopted a son named Denzel. He officially became a British citizen in 1892. Um, for that, he was an American citizen. He did a few lecture tours for a few months, and then he actually sat in Parliament as a liberal unionist for the North Landis from 1895 until 1990. 
1897, he went back to Africa, not an expedition, he was just visiting South Africa, and he wrote through South Africa in 1898. Um, and then in 1899, he was knighted, named Knight Grand Cross in the Order of the Bath, officially becoming Sir Henry Morton Stanley. He died May 10, 1904. Interesting. He was an interesting Yeah, most man. interesting man in the world. Some, something. I, <laughs> I don't have any words. Now, over a period of one year, from 1884 until 1885, there was an event that was unfurling in Africa that would, in a way, change the course of history. But before we get into that, we need to uh, kind of discuss the whole country of Sudan and why it's important to our story of European exploration and occupation in Africa. Starting around 1882, the British held a pretty firm belief that they held the country of Sudan by proxy. Basically, their leader had asked for help, Mubarak responded. However, Europe, and by extension the British, began to criminalize and ban the slave trade around this time frame. What a shock. And that was actually the primary source of income for Sudan. The massive change in their economy would give rise to the Mahdist forces, a group under the control of Muhammad Ahmed bin Abd Allah, or the Mahdi. He would be in charge of the Mahdi forces from June of 1881 until just after the Battle of Khartoum in 1885. Now, starting in 1873, a British man named Charles Chinese Gordon started his employ with the Khedive of Egypt with the approval of Great Britain. This seasoned military officer would serve as the Governor General of the Sudan and his entire job was basically putting down rebellions and destroying the slave trade wherever he found it. This continued until he eventually resigned because he was too exhausted to keep his job, which happened after seven years of nonstop work in Africa. Do you have any extra information about this? Very, uh... Oh, yeah, I have a little bit. So, uh, Charles Gordon was born also on January 28th, same as Stanley, um, just some years before in 1833 in Woolwick, England. He was the son of a senior army officer, so that military, you know, was uh, in his family. In 1852, he had been commissioned as second lieutenant in the Royal Engineers. He fought in the Crimean War and distinguished himself by his Reckless bravery in the siege trenches in Sevastopol. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Looks right. There's not really a whole lot about his early life. Um, He was promoted to captain in 1859. He volunteered the next year to join British forces fighting in China. This is where he got his nickname, Chinese Gordon or whatever. Um, In the Arrow War, he was there when Beijing was occupied. And then the following year in... The following year in October, he was also the one who personally directed the burning of the Chinese emperor's summer palace. In May 1862, uh, his corps of engineers were assigned to strengthen the European Trading Center in Shanghai, 
which at the time was being threatened by the Taiping Rebellion. Uh, the next year, 1863, he became the commander of 3,500 peasants who helped suppress the Taiping Uprising. Um, and when he returned to London two years later in 1865, uh, the public just called him Chinese Gordon. And that's pretty much all he did until 1873. Now, following the outbreak of the Modest War, Gordon decided to actually re-enter service and help however he could. In 1884, he would be sent to the Sudanese capital of Khartoum with instructions to remove all British citizens from the city and escort them home. He agreed and got underway, very quickly removing 2,500 people before he looked over this beautiful, gorgeous city. His city. So Brad mentioned the Mahdi, and we've already established that I'm the background person. Um, <laughs> so his full name again was uh, Muhammad Ahmed ben As Sayyid Abd Allah. He was born August 12th in 1844 on Dirar Island. His father was a boat builder and a member of the Arabized Nubian family from Dongola. Instead of joining the boat building business with his father and his brothers, Muhammad focused on religious studies. He learned the Quran in uh, Khartoum and Karari, and later on he actually studied law under Sheikh Muhammad Kier. In 1861, he had approached Sheikh Muhammad Ash Sharif, who was the leader of the Samania sect, in order to join his students to study Sufism, which is a sect of Islam. He realized, um, the sheikh realized how dedicated Muhammad was, so he actually appointed him a sheikh and permitted him to teach the path to new followers. So a pretty big deal. Uh, Ten years later, in 1871, his family moved to Abda Island in western Sudan. Muhammad built a mosque and started to teach the Quran. He became known as an excellent speaker and a mystic, and he gained a really popular reputation. From there, he started traveling um, to Dongola, Kor, Dauphin, and Sinar. During this time, he was um, struck by the hatred for the Ottoman Egyptian rulers. Um, a lot of people don't like them at the time. Uh, anyone who was educated and well-spoken um, was declared Mahdi by local populations who were hoping for some sort of deliverance or savior. I'm not going to do a deep dive into the Mahdi because it's a whole religious thing and there's so many sects of Islam that have uh, differing opinions on it. I'm not about to get into that. Uh, but in Arabic, it means the guided one. Um, it was seen as a... I can't say that word. I can say Arabic words, but apparently not. Messianic? Yeah. Deliverer who will fill the earth with justice and equity, restore true religion, and usher in a short golden age lasting seven, eight, or nine years before the end of the world. Um, I will say it's not mentioned in the Quran, and like I said, different sects of Islam have differing beliefs on this, and that's all I'm going to say. Abdal, yeah, Abdallah Ahi Ibn 
Muhammad, um, who was a Barka from southern Defar, joined Muhammad in his travels. Um, he had very invaluable organizational capabilities. So I guess he kept him on track. He was a secretary. <laughs> um, in 1881, they returned to Abda Island, uh, where Muhammad proclaimed himself Ahmadi al-Muntasar, which means the expected one, um, and began raising an army. Um, he used the V-shaped gap in his teeth to prove that he was the Mahdi. I guess. And then uh, he did things with... He did things with Gordon. With Gordon. Giggity, not giggity. Now, Gordon rallied his troops that would remain stationed in Khartoum. And he made it an absolute point that this city would hold. Not looking for bloodshed, the Mahdi surrounded the city and did his absolute best to convince Gordon to just give up and spare himself. Gordon was offered wealth positions of immaculate power, and even the city that he was trying to defend. But he would refuse all the offers on the grounds that the Mahdi just wanted him to join his religion. Gordon refused to do that. He commanded around 8,000 troops and had a stockpile of ammunition that was rumored to be up into the millions of rounds. He did maintain nearly constant contact with mainland Britain, and he sent them letters, missives, and telegraphs constantly. At one point in time, he informed the British command system that a local warlord could be bought off, and an additional 3,000 troops could be at the city to aid in its defense, if he only had the money to do so. He begged for that extra money, but he did also say that if the price was too high, American millionaires would do just fine. His background as a military man and engineer paid off as well. He turned the city of Khartoum into a fortress, complete with its own navy of small ships with metal sides and large guns that would patrol up and down the Nile River. In March of 1884, the siege began in earnest. Surrounded on all sides, there wasn't really much that either group could do. The Mahdi knew and understood he did not have the resources for a full siege and blockade, but he also led from the front, and he decided that a small show of force was necessary. There wasn't a lot that he could do, but they did destroy the telegraph wires in April, meaning that communication completely stopped. And this is where you need to ask yourself, did the Brits actually want Sedan? Are you asking me? I am asking you. I'm going to say nothing because I read this part of what you wrote. Oh. <laughs> if you answer yes, you're completely wrong. The British didn't care. It was too difficult to control. Plus, most of Sedan was already in an active revolt against their British overlords. The British didn't want to lose another revolution. They wanted Gordon. Not Sedan. Not Khartoum. Gordon. But they didn't even really want him until the public decided that this hero of the empire needed to be saved. It was really just a whole thing. And to make it even more dramatic, there are still persisting rumors to this day that there was a relationship of sorts between old Queen Vicky and Gordon. Whether or not it was completely platonic, whether they were in an secret relationship, the world's probably never going to know. 
But in August, the British government finally caved and decided to save Gordon by any means necessary. By this time, though, there was a lot of things happening in Khartoum that they were not aware of. That pretty little navy that he had built, completely destroyed. Food? There is no food. There's no meat left in the entire city. People were starving to death on a daily basis. Gordon realized this, and he knew that a live population was much better than a dead one. And he insisted that anyone who wished to leave Khartoum, even to join the opposing force, was welcome to do so. He understood what was going on. Half the population of the city of Khartoum would leave at this request. To make matters worse, a note written by Gordon was sent with a messenger to find relief forces that he knew were coming. That letter reads as follows. Khartoum, all right, can hold out for years. The oral message relayed to British Field Marshal Wolseley was something a little bit different, though. Now, the boy delivering the letter couldn't speak a lot of English, but he did have one phrase drilled into his head. We need you to come quick. Within the month, Gordon received a letter from the Mahdi promising safe passage out of the city for anyone who wanted to leave. He stated that Allah did not want these men to die here. But by now, Gordon had suffered a complete and total mental collapse. He was lighting candles and lanterns throughout the city day and night, trying to direct artillery for where to hit. He was literally begging for death, and he even stated openly to everyone that even if help did come, he would never leave. He would die with his city. Now, General Garnet Wolseley would command the relief mission known as the Nile Expedition. He was a veteran of wars all over the world and commanded a force of around 6,000 troops made up of British, Irish, and Canadian forces. Joining the actual military force were 386 Canadian voyagers, or water guides, sent to navigate the Nile as they ascended the river. Of this force, an additional 86 of these voyagers were First Nationers, basically what the Canadians call Native Americans. The massive flotilla would meet at the town of Wadi Halfa on October 7th, 1884, and they'd start to move upriver from there with more experienced voyagers in command of the ships. By November, the group had gotten word that Gordon's time was running out quickly. He himself expected that he would be dead within less than 30 days. Progress was tediously slow. Rapids and raids from natives and the Mahdi forces meant that there was always a delay. Couple that with the fact that sometimes these ships would need to be physically pulled upriver because of how rapid the rapids were. Then add that into the fact that sometimes several crews would be needed to move a single ship and you've got just nothing but constant delays. Wolseley finally decided that this was taking, and I quote, too damned long, <laughs> and he split his forces in half. 3,000 would stay on the river in the boats and attempt to reach Khartoum by the waterways, while another group of around 2,400 would cross the desert on camels in an attempt to get to their location as quickly as possible. Late in November or early December, there's a lot of discrepancy there, it became clear that something was wrong with the voyagers sent from Canada. They just stopped working. 
They didn't care. Upon investigation, it was found out that their six months contract had expired and most were getting ready to return home to Canada rather than stay in Africa. Many attempts to keep them were made with massive monetary incentives being the primary bribe, but it was pretty much in vain. They wanted to go home to their families and been gone for over half a year at this point. And if they left right now, they could make it home in time for logging season. Only 86 of the original group stayed. It's kind of weird how often the number 86 is coming up. Yeah, and I just think it's funny that like they were counting down the days to their contract ended and they were like, oh, we're done. I mean, we know what day we're supposed to stop. I mean, same, like I feel it. <laughs> Mad respect to counting down those six months. On January 26th of 1885, water levels of the Nile would drop dramatically. It happens every year. And this gave the Mahdi's army the opportunity to wage a full-scale attack across the city. They crossed the river at shallow points, and 50,000 troops poured into the city, and without hesitation, slaughtered everyone to the man. All 7,000 defenders. General Gordon would be beheaded, and his severed skull would be delivered to the Mahdi. Two days. 48 hours after the fall of the city, the first relief steamer appeared on the horizon. The city was burning, the Nile River literally stained red with blood. And there was no sense to go any further. Not now. The on-scene commander, Brigadier General Charles Wilson, simply turned his ship around and left. No help would come. There was absolutely nothing that could be done. And while this is the end of our story, it is worth mentioning the following. The entire British world would mourn the loss of Chinese Gordon, to the point of where Queen Victoria actually blamed British Prime Minister Gladstone on the loss of Gordon. He was removed from his office, publicly shamed, and eventually decided that revenge was the necessary path. The man who decided that was Herbert Kitchener, and in 1898, he vowed to avenge Gordon, recapture Sudan, and kill every menace he could find. I just want to say that if she was full out blaming someone, they were a thing. They were fucking. Oh, for they sure. They were fucking. The Mahdi was dead. His successor carried that title, but that was more than enough for Kitchener. The British army, as well as a small group from the Egyptian army, marched in force to do whatever they could do. 25,800 strong, and they're ready to square off against this new Mahdi and his 52,000 soldiers, even if it meant certain absolute death. For a quick note, the original Mahdi died from typhus right. in 1885. On September 2nd, 1898, a group of tribesmen attacked the British lines. They did basically nothing. Armored gunboats in the Nile River ripped them to shreds before they could even get close, painting the sand a deep crimson red. Smoke and cries filled the air as the army kept advancing towards the British, being battled back again and again. When the enemy finally backed away and all the smoke cleared, no one managed to get within 50 meters of the British lines. And there were already 4,000 people dead. And it didn't stop. Fire and brimstone and ash flew across the battlefield until finally, just before 11 a.m., the one remaining cavalry unit of the Medi charged. 400 horsemen in their mounts, 
shouting war cries to the skies, each man were cut down in a hail of gunfire and cannons. Hot balls of lead ripped through skin and bone, and war screams died into panic shouts, eventually into total silence. When the last shot was fired, when the last of the dervish warriors had been killed, slaughtered to a man, a grand total of 12,000 modest troops were dead. And they only managed to kill 48 British. This was the, this major military engagement was both a first and a last in so many ways. Uh, firstly, this was the last use of a major cavalry charge by the British in military history. Maybe one day we'll get around to talking about that. Guns were slowly replacing mounted units, so there were no need for horses. Of course, we still had horses as late as the Second World War, but never to this scale again. Secondly, this battle would showcase the use of a new type of weapon, the hollow point round. It's designed to inflict massive damage. And there's a little quote that I've always found interesting that goes along with it. Uh, sticks and stones may break my bones, but hollow points expand my impact. Lastly, we mentioned quite a few names that you might not know. So let's talk about one that you will. Charging under the British flag was a group of cavalry units called the 21st Lancers. They were the only mounted units deployed by the British or Egyptian forces during this battle, which was the Battle of Amandur. If you broke it down into different units, you could eventually work down the chain to the 4th Hussars. In the 4th Hussars was a low-grade officer. Actually, he was the lowest-graded officer. He was the lowest-ranked commissioned guy on this battlefield. And it was none other than future British Prime Minister, professional cigar smoker, Winston motherfucking Churchill. <laughs> The lowest office, like lowest ranking person? Yeah. <laughs> Good he, for him. <laughs> he actually wrote about this and published several articles about his experience. I love to publish things. Because um, while he was absolutely a commissioned officer who was here to kill people, he was also reckless. And the guys under his command didn't like him. So while he did charge with the 21st Lancers, they made one sweep, came back, and he was pulled off his horse by his commander and told to just take notes on what he saw. <laughs> and he became a field reporter. And then uh, prime minister. Uh, yeah, many, many years later. Yeah, yeah. Winston motherfucking church. <laughs> I found that so, so cool. All right, do we have anything else to talk about? I think that covers it. All right. Does it all make sense how it's all connected? How we got from Livingstone to the Nile Expedition, eventually to Winston Churchill. I think it does. Okay. I think it makes sense. I think it's pretty linear. White men went to Africa and um, bugged shit up. That's, Basically. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. So today in history has a lot of really interesting things. And if for some reason you haven't looked at a calendar today, or if things just don't seem to be making sense, you might realize that it is April 1st. It is April Fool's Day. The first recorded April Fool's, April Fool's pranks were actually done in 1700, when English pranksters began popularizing the annual tradition of April Fool's by playing practical jokes on one another. 48 years later, in 1748, the ruins of Pompeii were rediscovered by Spanish explorer... Uh, Rock Joaquin de Acumbiere. Thank you so much. <laughs> and in 1934, Bonnie and Clyde, Clyde. 
Clive. Bonnie and Clive. <laughs> would kill two patrolmen, H.D. Murphy and Edward Brandt, at an intersection on Route 114 near Grapevine, Texas. In 1939, Francisco Franco proclaimed victory of the Spanish Civil War. If you want to learn more about that, we did an episode of the Spanish Civil War in season one. This was my first episode. I think it was episode 11. It was episode 12. Episode 12? Episode 12. Okay, episode 12. Um, And then in 1957, the BBC aired the infamous Spaghetti Tree. Um, It was a three-minute long little thing. Um, that portrayed a Swiss family who harvested spaghetti from a tree. Many people called into the station asking how they could buy and grow such a plant, and it's still to this day one of the best and most notable um, April Fool's Day jokes. (laughs) I have no response about the spaghetti tree. I love I think it's so funny. I love it. I love spaghetti tree. Be sure to stay tuned after our outro to hear about our friend Steph over on the podcast, Creepy Vibes Only. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of Strange History. Now, we recently did a guest appearance on the podcast Nightmare Lane. That episode will be coming out April 3rd. You can hear about the creepy pastas that ruined Alyssa's life. <laughs> they really did. Uh, we also did another episode that's going to come out later in April, I think around the 16th, but I could be wrong on that date, um, where Brad and I share some personal paranormal experiences. Ooh. It was super exciting, so be sure to go give them a listen uh, and a follow so you know when those episodes come out. Um, they're, they were really fun to work with. Oh, they really were. They were great people. Now, be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter for all the latest updates. You can also follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, or wherever your ears are listening. And of course, always enjoy the strange, weird things that make us, us. Hello, lovely humans. Steph here from Creepy Vibes Only, a comedy and horror podcast that covers nothing but the creepiest subjects. Tune in every Monday to get your dose of Creepy for the Week. Available on all major listening platforms and YouTube. See you soon!